want you to take your Bibles. We're going to be looking in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, continuing on in uh, my message about the government that you can trust. Uh, interesting passage of Scripture. You know, approximately 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote about the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The prophet spoke of the earthly ministry of Jesus, but also he wrote about the eternal nature of his reign. He speaks with awesome detail about who Jesus is and who he was and who he's always going to be. And I want you to notice how he began to write about him. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, The virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. What an amazing passage of Scripture. As you look on into the ninth chapter of Isaiah, our focal verse today, verse 6, says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. These will be his royal titles. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says in verse 7 that his ever-expanding peaceful government will never end. And he will rule forever with fairness and justice from his throne, the throne of his ancestor David. The passionate commitment of the Lord Almighty will guarantee this. As you can see, Isaiah elaborates on the terms of child and son in these two passages of Scripture. The child was to be born of a virgin, meaning that he would have no earthly father. This was going to be God's son, not the son of a man. The virgin's child would also be the royal heir of King David's uh, throne and he would have the rights to that Davidic throne he says very simply for a child is born to us a son is given to us what a gift a gift from God uh, Dr. Evans said this tells us that Jesus had to be born as a child to come to us he had to enter this world like we do as children <clears throat> but he is also the pre-existent son of God who was given to us. The child would be born in time and in space in Bethlehem, but this son has existed for all eternity. In Matthew's gospel, he writes about Joseph, and he says, as Joseph considered this, and this is that uh, thought about Mary being pregnant, it says that he fell asleep. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to go ahead with your marriage to Mary, for the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you, will, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You've got to understand the context of this. He's not talking about saving them from the Roman oppression that they lived in, but instead he's going to save them from their sins. We all need to be saved from our sins, right? That's what Scripture teaches us. Later on, the, Mary, the, the angel spoke to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. Says, you will become pregnant and have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, and he will be very great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, 
and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom, his government will never end. In Luke chapter 2, we find that Joseph taking the angel serious, he, he took Mary with him, uh, his wife, his fiancée, uh, who was obviously pregnant by this time. And while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, I want you to notice it said the time came for her baby to be born. It didn't say their baby. It didn't say his baby. It said her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son, and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the village inn. Around that same time, the angel spoke to the shepherd and said in Luke 2, 11, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem in the city of David. What a story. What an event. I think Valerie heard this more or this week as she went to one of the classes. You, you don't talk about these events as stories. This is an actual event. This took place, and what a special time it was. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, again, it says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government, notice this, will rest on his shoulders. This is a clear reference to Jesus Christ coming into the future. I believe in the near future to rule in his millennial kingdom. And again, Dr. Evans said, here again we see the near and the far aspects that frequently occur in the Old Testament prophecy because Jesus was born 2,000 years ago as a child, but the government of the universe has yet to be placed on his shoulders. He says this will happen at his coronation when he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the millennium. What a, what a promise the Lord has given us here. I want to draw your attention to Psalms chapter 2, and I would encourage you sometime today, if you want to read a, an interesting passage of Scripture about the end of times, read Psalms chapter 2. Actually, I want to include verse 6. I didn't include it in your notes, but it says very carefully, this is God speaking, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem and on, his, on the holy mountain. And in verse 7, it says that the king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I have become your father. Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. And you will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. And then in verse 10, he, he addresses the kings, the leaders of the world. And he says this. He says, now then, you kings act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry. And you will be destroyed in the midst of your pursuits. For his anger can flare up in an instant. But the joy of all who find protection, there, but what joy for all who find protection in him. I want you to notice that the fulfillment of this verse is in the Son who comes to rule the nations, and he will break, with a, uh, break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. The, the supreme sovereignty of the King of Kings is clearly seen here in all his subjugating might. 
No nation, no ruler that will ever exist or has ever existed, no matter how many nukes they might have in their arsenal, will be able to stand up against him according to Scripture. Rebellion against the Messiah is, um, is pointless. Uh, the Messiah's kingdom is, is strong. You can't rebel against it. It's futile to try to do so. It's kind of like an ant going up against a, a bull elephant. There's not much of a match there. Scripture is clear. The divine Son of God will rule the nations of the world. Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus said these words. He said, to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, he said, I will give authority over all the nations, and they will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will, be, they will have the same authority that I have received from my Father. And I will also give them the morning star. He said in verse 29, anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I, I encourage you to listen to what the Spirit is saying to you because these are some very powerful and important words. John speaks in Revelation 19 verse 11 and says this. He said, Then I saw heaven open and a white horse was standing there and the one sitting on the horse was named Faithful and True for he judges fairly. And then he goes to war. His eyes were bright like flames of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And a name was written on him. And only he knew what it meant. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword. And with it he struck down the nations, and he ruled them with an iron rod, and he trod the winepress of the fierce wrath of Almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. My friends, there will come a point in time when all the governments and the government leaders of this world will cease to exist. They will be no more, and there will be no more. Only God's government will be left at that point, and that is the government that you can trust. J. Vernon McGee said, history is the monotonous account of how a government flourished for a time with pomp and pride and then was brought to ruin and rubble. Why? Because corruption and lawlessness became rampant. Isn't that where we are today? Absolutely. He says, and as it did... God brought the government to an end. When God is through with government, when it has served his purpose, just like death and the grave, there will be no more need of it, and it will end. At that time, God's government, the government that you can trust, will be ruled by Jesus Christ and him alone. The Bible says that the government that belongs to God will rest securely on the shoulders of his son Jesus. And he alone will be the sovereign ruler. His government, it says, will be a peaceful government. Wouldn't you love to have one of those? It will be an ever-expanding government that will have no end. Jesus is going to rule in justice and fairness. 
And notice that Isaiah the prophet says this. He said, God Almighty will guarantee this government, this righteous government. That means you can trust it. And you can trust it because of who Jesus is. I want you to notice something about the titles that he has given. The Bible says <clears throat> that Jesus will be our wonderful counselor. There's not a one of us here in this room this morning that can, that can deny that we need a counselor, a wise counselor. Uh, why? Because life is perplexing. It is bewildering. It is complex and problematic and disconcerting. Life is hard. We live in a fallen world. It is not easy. It is difficult. We all have an inescapable need for a divine counselor. Well, the scripture says that this king will surely implement his supernatural wisdom as he discharges his office. Not only will he be our wonderful counselor, but the Bible says that he will be our mighty God. I want you to understand that this coming Messiah is the most powerful warrior that has ever existed. Why? Because he is God Almighty. He has all the power. Uh, he is, he is, has all strength. There's nobody that even comes close to him. He is mighty God in his pre-incarnate glory and splendor. He was mighty at his birth when time invaded eternity and split it in two. He was mighty in his ministry. He is mighty in his incomparable miracles. He was mighty in his teaching, put, putting his imperishable truths of the kingdom into word form so indestructible that man could never forget them. He was mighty in his death as he rescued us from hell, the hell that we all deserved, and he made us heirs of the heaven that we had forfeited. He was mighty in his resurrection as he came as the mighty conqueror over man's last and greatest enemy, which is death. He will be mighty as he comes in all of his splendor and his matchless and transcendent glory. So he's going to be our wonderful counselor. He's going to be our mighty God. The Bible says he is also the everlasting father. That's interesting. We normally, when we think of the word father, we think about the first person of the Trinity, the first person of the Godhead. But here, that title belongs to Jesus. Actually, the best translation of everlasting father would be the father of eternity. Why? Because Jesus is the one who holds eternity in his possessions. In John chapter 1, verse 1, John wrote about him when he said, In the beginning was the Word. The Word already existed. That means he was eternal. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God and he created everything that is and nothing exists that he didn't make. That simply means Jesus always was and he always will be. He is both the unbeginning one and the unending one. He writes here about how Jesus, the Messiah, will be the father to his people for all eternity. Isaiah understood that. He said in chapter 40, verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with her young. In chapter 63, he writes, Surely you are still our father. Even if Abraham and Jacob would disown us, Lord, you would still be our father. 
You are our redeemer from ages past, from eternity past. He says, and yet, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. You are, uh, or we are all formed by your hand. The psalmist wrote, the Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. He is our everlasting father. The last title that he's giving is that Jesus will be our prince of peace. I said to you last week that Jesus Christ is the prince who brings peace. His kingdom, <clears throat> his government, <clears throat> weather change. His government is characterized by peace. His government will procure and perpetuate peace among the nations. And that is one, one of the things that no earthly ruler has ever been able to do. Wouldn't it be wonderful if he could go right now into Europe and bring peace over there? Look at what Isaiah writes about him in chapter 2 verse 4. <clears throat> he says the Lord will settle <clears throat> international disputes. All nations will beat their swords and, into plowshares and, and their spears into pruning hooks and all wars will stop and military, military training will come to an end. It's an amazing passage of scripture in the 11th chapter of Isaiah that has always intrigued me. It says in verse 6, In that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. Don't see that today, do you? It says the leopard and the goat will be at peace. Calves and yearlings will be safe among lions and a little child will lead them all. The child or the cattle will graze among bears and cubs and calves will lie down together and lions will eat grass as livestock do. Babies will crawl safely among poisonous snakes and yes, a little child will put his hand in a nest of deadly snakes and pull it out unharmed. There's hope for Ronnie after all. <clears throat> Ronnie's scared to death of a snake. But uh, in this day, they're not going to have a problem with that. Notice verse 9. It said, nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And as the waters fill the sea, so the earth is filled with people who know the Lord. Now, this is important. They don't just know the Lord with their head. They know the Lord with their heart. They know him personally. In verse 10 it said, In that day the heir of David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him for the land where he lives will be a glorious, play, play, glorious place. Praise God that our, our prince is not a tyrant. He is a benevolent ruler. He does not hate. He loves. He does not manipulate. He guides. He does not take. He gives. He does not oppress. He encourages us. He lifts us up. Our prince is the prince of peace. He is the one that you can trust. His government can be trusted. And even while his government has not yet been established on earth, you can trust him as the king of kings and lord of lord of your heart. I said to you last week that as the Prince of Peace, Jesus has both the desire and the ability to, to give you his peace that will help you in 
and three very important relationship needs that you have. We all have these needs. Jesus can enable you to have peace with God through his work of reconciliation. He can forgive your sins. He can make you right with God. He can give you that relationship that you desperately need with the Lord. He can also give you peace within yourself and peace with other people. You can get along with the Lord and you can get along with each other. And so when that peace that you get from God, you're living with that peace, then and only then will you be able to enjoy the blessings of God. I, I want to point out a prayer to you that John prayed for a dear friend of his, a man by the name of Gaius. It's found in the third chapter of John, beginning in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Notice what he says here. He says, Dear friend, I pray that all is well with you and that your body is as healthy as I know your soul is. If I could say it another way, he was praying. He said, I, I pray for your physical health and that your everyday affairs will prosper as well as I know your soul has already prospered in the Lord. In other words, I'm praying for God's blessings on you. I'm praying for you to prosper. One of the things that I want you to be able to see here and understand is that in God's kingdom agenda, it operates for the purpose of sharing his blessings on you and, and sharing the blessings on all the institutions that we've been talking about who are willing to follow him. We've talked about self-government. We've talked about church government. We've talked about family government and civil government. And when those are willing to follow him, they truly will be blessed. Do you remember how, how God said that he would bless the children of Israel and how they would prosper? What, what precluded that blessing? Deuteronomy 29 talks about it. Verse 9, God said to his children, Therefore, obey the terms of this covenant, and you will prosper in everything that you do. He said the same thing to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 7 of his book. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. He said, then you will be successful in everything that you do. In verse 8, he says, study the book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything in it. Only then, he said, will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. As you can see, these verses simply say that if you live your life in a way that is pleasing to God, that you will enjoy his blessings. There are present and eternal benefits from being obedient to God. God blesses obedience. Friends, America has, has been a blessed nation. Would you agree with me on that? God has blessed us abundantly. Uh, early on in the history of America, we attempted to live our life in a way that pleased God. We certainly weren't perfect in our attempt but this country tried to operate with a decentralized government. Let me explain that. God spread the authority of government across the board so that no one person held that authority. And because of that, we prospered like no other nation in the history of mankind, even though the leaders that we had at the very top were not all Christian. So there was a decentralized government as we began as, infant, as an infant nation. What do we hear today? 
Big government, right? We see big government all the time being talked about. Again, Dr. Evans said God's kingdom, God's government operates through decentralized plural institutions under his centralized leadership in order to produce self-government under him by creating a system of checks and balances in all the areas of life we protect ourselves and each other from the temptation that brought satan to his ultimate demise which was his pride by holding each other accountable we are able then to experience and extend God's blessings in our own lives and out to the lives of those who live around us as well. It is God's will for him to prosper us and, and for us to reach our greatest God-given potential. He certainly wants to bless us. He wants to bless you and he wants to bless me and he wants to bless all of us. He wants you to experience him personally and and it, it is also God's will for your family and your church and, and the nation that we live in to experience all of the blessings that God has graciously uh, given to us or, and can come from his hand. But these amazing blessings can only be experienced as we come under the, 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 the authority of God and as we honor God in his rightful role as the sovereign ruler of the universe. What is God's kingdom agenda? If I could define it, I would simply say it is the visible manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of our life. The comprehensive rule over every area of our life. That's how you would define it. What does it look like? I found a, a psalm, Psalm 128, that paints a very powerful picture of what this looks like in how it operates. And I want us to look at that very carefully as we look at these verses. There are four steps in the progression of God's blessings to us. In Psalms chapter 128, verse 1 and verse 2, we find that God's blessings start with personal, uh, with a person who self-governs his, his or her life according to the word of God. Look at what the psalmist wrote. He said, how joyful are those who fear the Lord, all who follow his ways. You will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous you will be. The goal that God has for each of us is that we learn to take him serious and that we learn to self-govern ourselves under his divine rule. Friends, that's not going to happen for you if you're a part-time Christian if you're just a, a want-to-be Christian, for you to live your life in a way that pleases God, you must embrace commitment. You must embrace accountability to God. To self-govern yourself means that you learn to control your attitude and your actions without external control. And that simply means that no one has to make you do the right thing. You, you choose to do that. You choose on your own to live your life in a way that pleases God. Again, God's ultimate goal is for you to govern yourself under him and under his authority. But you say, but why is that important that we learn to do that? Well, scripture is clear. Romans chapter 14, verse 12, that one day each of us will have to give a personal account to God for how we've lived our life. We're going to have to stand before God and we're going to have to give account for everything we've ever done and everything that we've ever said. 
Romans 8, 8 says that those who are still under the control of their sin nature will never be able to please God. But those who learn to self-govern themselves, it says God blesses their fortune. The psalmist said, you will enjoy the fruit of your labor. He will also bless your feelings. He says, you will be joyful. You will also see that he blesses your future. He says, you will be prosperous. A second step in that progress is found in verse 3 and 4, where it says God blesses the family who respects him and his biblical design of family government. I want you to notice in particular that since God intends for men to be the spiritual leader of their homes, I want you to notice that that's who he addresses here. Look at with me at verse 3. He said, your wife will give you many children like a vine that produces much fruit. And your children will bring you much good like olive branches that produce many olives. This is how the man who respects the Lord will be blessed. Listen, God created the, the institution of the family to be the foundation of society. Family is to be the backbone of biblical society. And so that being the case, there has to be biblical family government within the home for society to be able to be healthy. For instance, there was a time when, when it was clearly understood that the husband was to be the head of the family government. There was a time when it was understood like Joshua that, that a father's most important role was saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But men, I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that we've abdicated that responsibility to others. We've, we've given that away. We're not taking that serious. Nonetheless, God's not changed his mind. He's not changed his word on the subject, has he? He hasn't revised his instructions on the design of the family. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul writes, For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the body the church he gave his life to be her savior as the church submits to Christ so you wives must submit to your husbands in everything and as you husbands must love your wives with the same love that Christ showed for the church he gave his life for her to make her holy and clean washed by baptism and God's word he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man is actually loving himself when he loves his wife. It's, uh, in my lifetime, I, I have seen very few wives that refuse to follow a godly husband. If a man chooses to be godly, a wife typically will follow him. There are exceptions to the rule, especially in our day, but that's typically the way things go. But listen, when a, when a husband takes God seriously and when he becomes the servant leader of his home and he loves his wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church, that is when he encourages his wife to be the fruitful helper that God wants her to be, and that is when God blesses the family just that simple that's the way God's word says it should be in verse 5 we find a third 
level in this progression. And that is that God also blesses the church that takes their relationship to him seriously. Look at what the psalmist writes in verse 5. He said, may the Lord continually bless you. May he bless his people from Zion. Zion in the Old Testament, if you study that passage, you'll find typically referred to the city of Jerusalem or even to the temple of God. Well, we live in the New Testament time. And in New Testament times, the church is the temple of God. We are the people of God. We are the dwelling place of God. Notice what Hebrews 12, 18 says. He's writing to the church when he wrote these words. And he said, you have not come to a physical mountain. And then in verse 22, he said, no, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And you have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge of all people. And you have come to the spirits of the redeemed in heaven, who have now been made perfect. God calls Christians like you and me to be a part of a covenant community. And if you are truly a a believer of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you automatically become a part of the family of God. But, but you have also been called to be and to have an active part in a local church. That's why you've heard me preach for over 21 years that, that church membership is a normal and expected part of the Christian experience. He wants each of us who have faith in him to be a part of a local church family. Why? Because there are certain blessings that can only be received and enjoyed corporately from inside the body of Christ. Again, Dr. Evans wrote some very interesting words when he said, the church is where the rules of eternity operate as a location in history. We gather together to hear the word from heaven so that we may live out heaven's viewpoint in the world. He also wrote that God designed the church to be the epicenter of culture, And the church's strength and weakness is a major determining factor in the success or failure of human society. God knows what he's doing. He's put us together as a family for a reason. And God wants to bless us. Notice this last couple of verses in the psalm. Psalm 128, verse 5 and verse 6. He talks about how God blesses the nation whose peace, with peace, who who honor God's kingdom rule. In verse 5, he writes, May you see Jerusalem prosper as long as you live, and may you live to enjoy your grandchildren. That's something every grandparent wants to do, amen? (laughs) Enjoy grandchildren. He said, May you live to enjoy your grandchildren, and may Israel have quietness and peace. Let me substitute The word America in this verse. May you see America prosper as long as you live. And may you live to enjoy your grandchildren. And may America have quietness and peace. I've said to you for a long time now. As goes your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So goes your family. And as goes your family so goes your church. And as goes your church, so goes our nation. 
when God's kingdom agenda is a priority in, event, in individuals who are committed to their family, that are committed to their churches, and are committed to making a difference in our world. That is when society is transformed into something much better. And that is when God's blessings are poured out on you. And that is when God receives the glory that he rightfully deserves. My friends, I want to just ask you a simple question this morning as I close. What is it that you need to do to make life better at your home? What do you need to do to make life better in your, your church? What do you need to do personally to make life better here in this country? That's a challenge. We all need to come under God's authority. And I encourage you to think about that and be submissive to the Lord. Why? Because his government is a government that can be trusted.